is Looking Back, Moving Forward, a podcast of the undergraduate class of MIT 1994. The goal is to get an audio recording of our entire class, a chance to hear from old friends, and an opportunity to meet the classmates you didn't know you needed to know. Hello, everybody. This is episode three of the MIT class of 1994 podcast. It is January 20th, 2021. And I'm excited to have Terry Duhon as my guest. She is an author, lecturer, entrepreneur, motivational speaker, um, sits on boards, does all sorts of things. I don't know where she has the time. Um, and also was a trader with JP Morgan on the credit derivatives. I'll let her maybe go into that a bit more. Um, so welcome, Terry. Wow, thank you for having me. What a great idea. I'm really glad you've done this. I'm looking forward to hearing what uh, some of our classmates have to say. I hope it will be interesting to our classmates. I'm finding it in interesting. Um, but just so people that are listening have an idea, um, where, were you, where were you living on campus? I lived at number six, actually. I, um, I, it's a, number six was a co-ed fraternity, actually. And so that first week when we were freshmen, um, I can't even remember what building they, you know, I think they distributed us all across different buildings, didn't they, in that first week. And then, um, you know, we all went to a bunch of different parties and <laughs> the different dorms were trying to recruit us. Um, and I remember some great big party at Baker House, which was great fun. And then um, some some sorority things and then I found number six and I and it just seemed like such a fun place um, and I moved in and I stayed there for the four years nice and where are you living now I live in London now and did work bring you there or how did you get yeah so I mean I'm, I'm originally from Louisiana actually okay. um, so can't tell from your accent <laughs> no but, I mean Boston was a huge cultural uh, transition for me um, and then from MIT I had a I studied I was course 18 I did math um, from MIT I went straight to Wall Street I worked for JP Morgan on Wall Street as a, an interest rate derivative trader and then I helped to build the credit derivative business and part way through I spent 10 years on the trading floor and part way through there was an opportunity to go to London and build the credit derivative business across Europe and um, I raised my hand and I thought gosh won't this be great I'm gonna move to London I'm gonna spend a few years working in London and then I'm gonna go to Hong Kong and spend a few years there and maybe I'll skip back to Paris and who knows maybe I'll have a little leap into San Fran and then eventually I'll who knows where I'm gonna end up and I got to London um, and met an Englishman <laughs> And then, <laughs> the rest and, is then history. and the rest and the rest is history. So I've been there now more than twenty years, I think. Oh, just a little, maybe twenty-one years. With the time time difference between California and London, I appreciate you getting on late this evening. Your time, um, so very much appreciated. Um, so you studied math. Um, did you think you were going to be a course eighteen when you? entered MIT or? No, I, I, you know, I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do, to be honest. I, when I first applied to MIT, I mean, I was, I was good in math and science. I wasn't a genius, you know, because we had some unbelievably genius classmates who were 
so impressive. That wasn't me. I was good enough, but I wasn't. I was definitely not um, the genius. But but I, I enjoyed math and science. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do mechanical engineering. I'm going to design race cars. I'm going to do something really sexy, really fun. And then, um, and then I got to MIT and... I can't remember, I think second term, first term maybe, I did 201, which is the first, because mechanical engineering was course two, and so 201 was the first course, I think it was all about stresses and strains, and I wasn't that excited about it, if I'm honest, and then um, someone said, you know, you don't actually get to design the whole race car, you get to do some, you know, you get to um, work on the fuel injector, or the treads on the tire, or something like that and I thought hmm I really kind of wanted to design the whole race car <laughs> you know and and the truth is I hadn't really given it enough thought um but I decided you know what maybe I should just go for something more generic that I could just do anything with so I decided to move into to do math and when I did that my parents flipped and they said oh my god Terry how are you going to get a job with a math degree <laughs> Because if you, if you remember, I mean, 1990 was not, nobody talked about STEM. Um, they thought I needed some practical education so that I could get a real job. And they said, how are you going to get a job with a math degree? And I said, I'm sure I'm going to figure it out. I'm, I promise I'll figure it out. But I just, I can't do mechanical engineering. <laughs> it's funny now, because of course we encourage everybody to do anything in STEM. Um, but back then that simply wasn't the case. Yeah, I, I, I just find it funny because I went to MIT thinking I was going to study math, and then I ended up being a mechanical engineer. So I did oh. the exact flip from you. Oh, that's so, so um, funny. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry if you're designing. Oh, no, no, no. I, 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 I did not enjoy 201 either. So, you know, yeah, 201 was your first and only exposure to mechanical. It's, yeah, that was not... That was not good, or at least not for me. It was, <laughs> but other classes intrigued me. So, um, did you have a favorite professor or class while you were at MIT? You know, I. Um, you know what's so funny is, I. So I have two stories for you. So the first, I'm sure we must all remember, that physics professor, who taught was it 801 and 802. Um, Professor Lewin, yeah. Yes, Professor Lewin, um, who I just, I remember him sitting on a ball hanging from the ceiling and swinging across the platform to describe, to, to demonstrate some, something. And he was fantastic. I mean, he brought things to life. And that was, you know, professors that could do that because they couldn't all, but the ones who could were really quite spectacular. I think I think that's changed today, by the way. I think, you know, I listen to a lot of the, um, the, the alum, you know, the professors that give these lectures to alums, and a lot of them are really impressive lecturers today in the way that I, I don't think they all were in the past. But it's funny because I, um, one point in my career, after I left the trading floor, I became an entrepreneur and I built a business. One of the businesses I built was a, a training business so we provided we ran all the training programs for the banks globally you know when you go into the analyst or the associate program in a bank you go into a you know four week to six month program um to train you to to actually do anything in finance and we we used to design and run those programs and i ran a program once for goldman sachs this is so so long ago and one of the people on the program 
came up to me and said, Terry, I was your professor at MIT. <laughs> and, I, and I was shocked because he, t I, I didn't even remember, but of course, I guess he would have remembered me because you know, there were so few women in, in the math department at the time. I think it was only 10% women, so I would have stood out. Um, but uh, yeah, it's quite, it's quite funny to think about the professors back then. I, I, I can barely even remember being a student it's so long ago sometimes. Uh, it, it has been. Um, but yeah, I, I, course 18, I don't remember the professors being all that scintillating um, <laughs> of the classes that I took. So... Um, but yeah, Professor Lewin for physics was, was pretty amazing. Um, so I read your book. Um, Did you? Or, well, no, I, I shouldn't <laughs> say. I'm, half, I'm halfway through your book on how the trading floor really works. Yeah, and I, I, will, I, I, I will put a link for people so they can see it. But I have to say, thank you. I have learned so much. Wow, um, thank you. I, you know, I, I t when I talk, when I give talks, I always say, yes, I'm a published author. My book is as popular as Fifty Shades of Grey. You can imagine how many people want to know how the trading floor really works. <laughs> It, but no, I mean, because I mean, I'm familiar with obviously retail banking and mortgages and buying stocks at a very small level. But it, that whole world of, you know, your JP Morgan and trading and I, I was like, wow, um, yeah, it, it's been fascinating. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. I, I mean, it was meant to be an easy read and make finance accessible, um, but but also to um, make it personal and human. You know, I tried to include as many stories as I could. I, there were some stories, by the way, that the publisher wouldn't let me put in because they were so um, horrific and the, the, people, the people could have possibly been identified. They didn't want to get sued. So. <laughs> you know, that's, that's always a concern. Yeah. I mean, I just, um, you know, those were the do you, days. Do you, anyway. miss, do you miss being trading or...? You know, it seems like, like it was I, very stressful, or it well, seems very, like, from the yeah. outside, it looks very, you know, the, yeah. the truth is, I, I chose the trading floor because it was a high-energy location, and I needed that kind of high-energy, constant change to keep me engaged and motivated throughout the day, and I got that. You know, being trading exotic derivatives, interest rates, and then credit derivatives, it was so exciting, and... Um, I loved it. But the truth is, you know, I, I spent 10 years on the trading floor and um, after about eight years, what I've learned about myself is that I get bored. And I then take about two years to figure out what's next. And so when I left the trading floor to become an entrepreneur, um, it was time. It was absolutely time. I just, I, I loved it while I did it and then it was time to move on. And, um, you know, I then again spent 10 years as an entrepreneur and, um, didn't exactly hit the ball out of the park, although I had a great, great fun doing what I did. Um, made some money and sold a, sold a business, but um, I, I loved it. And then I was bored and needed to do something else. And so I'm on career three, you know, where I sit on boards and I, I lecture at Oxford. I'm an associate fellow there and um, I have a lot of fun, but there's gonna be a career four and a career five and a career six you know, because why not? It's just kind of like reinventing yourself every 10 years is sort of, a, has, is a bit of fun. No, I, I think that's great. And you said you wanted to talk about career ownership today. So what do you mean by that? Um, 
how do we own our careers? Well, it's, you know, I talk about this a lot. Um, I speak to universities, I guess lecture at universities, I speak to corporates, um, uh, you know, to, to employees, both, both jun junior and senior, actually. And the idea of ownership is one that um, is not obvious to everyone. And the, I talk about it in a you know, very, very simple way, which is that no one else knows your hopes and dreams. No one knows your future potential as much as you do. And so if you don't take ownership and have a, you know, make some decisions about where you're headed and point yourself in a particular direction, nobody else is gonna do it for you. And, you know, organizations operate in a specific way. They basically say, look, what's right for the organization? And then what people can we put in those boxes? They don't do it the other way around. They don't think, oh, what's, gonna, what's right? You know, what could Kimberly do? Let's design the business around Kimberly. They don't do that. And some small organizations do, by the way, but the larger you get, the, the rarer that activity, that sort of thinking is. And, and so ultimately, um, you need to decide where you're headed, right? And not be a passive player. And another point is that, you know, many industries promote people because they perform, not because they're leaders or managers. And so you may not be reporting to someone who is thinking, what's best for Kimberly, right? You know, where, what skills does she need to, to grow? Where is she headed? How can we really make her successful? Most, most managers are not thinking that about their employees and maybe they're thinking about you know about that for one employee but maybe not all and so you have to take ownership you know because your future potential is something that you can see you own and you have to put out there and so you know career ownership is is career empowerment and do you set or do you encourage people to set like five-year goals, 10-year goals, yeah, one-year you know, goal, I, I like mean, find a mentor, like how do you... Well, there, look, there are, I mean, there's no golden bullet here. Um, <laughs> and everybody's path is their own. But what I, what I encourage people to think about is not where am I and where can I go from where I am, but where do I want to be, right? And that could be in two years time, it could be in three years time, it could be in five years time, it could be in 10 years time, right? Whatever that, that goal that you have ahead of you, where do you want to be? Where, where are you excited about? Where are you interested? Where do you see really leveraging your future potential? Where do you see yourself? And then work backwards from there. And most people start with where am I now? And that's the wrong question because it doesn't matter where you are now. If you're clever enough, and look, our alums are pretty clever. Um, if you're clever enough, you can look forward, see where you want to be and figure out how to get, you know, and work backwards to get there. And that's the kind of thought process that I encourage people to go through. And the truth is you, you can't, you shouldn't be doing that on your own. You know, I always tell people your path is your own, but you're not alone. And what that means is talk to people, chat with people, get perspectives, get, 
you know, speak to people in the industry you're headed for or speak to people in the role that you'd like to have at some point or, um, you know, get as many different perspectives as you can and slowly think through what that path could look like or, um, you know, what your skills are or what your skill gaps are or where, what you need to learn or how you need to grow. Um, and you'll eventually, you know, the more you talk about it, the more you get comfortable talking about it, the more you'll develop your sort of a bit of an elevator pitch, but it, it helps you express to people and see your future potential because you can talk about it confidently. Um, and so use your community is what I always say. Your, your path is your own, but you're not alone. Use your community. Um, it's, you know, that's what communities are there for. They're there to support you and as much as you take from it, you give back and that's what makes us, that's what makes a community. So what are your current career goals, I guess, or, or where would you like to be? Well, that's... What, what's this next iteration <laughs> of Terry going to be? Yeah, that's such, that's such a good question. Um, you know, it's interesting because I thought I had a strong view on that in 2020 um, or at the beginning of 2020. And um, I was going to write a book. Um, I was going to do a TED Talk. I, um, I wanted to um, get on another board, a bigger board. Um, and... 2020 happened, of course, and I, I'm the primary caregiver for three kids, which means that homeschooling just completely derailed any, um, any free time I had to, to think or do anything. Um, and so now we're at the beginning of 2021 and I'm looking at re-looking at those goals and rethinking and, um, it may be a book or it may be a podcast or it may be some series of things. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn and I, I post a lot, but I'm um, mostly I'm doing lectures and guest lectures and, and speaking slots. And I think maybe I need to mix it up a little. Um, so it may not be a book. It may be some sort of mixed media something. Um, I... I, I have been invited to do another TED Talk, that one that wasn't canceled. Um, and and, uh, and um, so we'll see how that goes in March. And I'm thinking about what kind of board I might like to sit on. And so that's where, those are short-term goals. And longer term, I'm not entirely sure yet. So I'm still giving that some thought. So I'm using my community to bounce ideas around. But, um, you know, I like the idea of being open to opportunity, you know, whatever comes along and just explore it and think about it. And when you put yourself out there and when you tell people you're thinking about new things, you can get all sorts of wild and wacky and wonderful suggestions that come up. So anything could happen in the future. No, I, I, I think that's excellent. And how, since we are in the pandemic still, um, how is London doing and how are your kids doing? <laughs> are they well, back in school the, well, yet or the, are they the, still the homeschooled? UK, the UK is still in national lockdown. Or, okay. Yeah, I think all of the UK is in lockdown and um, no children are in school as far as I'm aware and there's no expectation that they're going back to school. Um, wow. Until maybe March, maybe not. Um, we don't really know. So 
we're still doing homeschooling and uh, and that is a that is a challenge and to be fair it's um, it's a challenge for working parents yes it's a challenge for kids who don't have good access to internet it's a challenge for kids um, whose parents can't help them with schooling it's a challenge for kids who don't even have the right um, uh, electronics to get them online and you know so I think you know the bigger damage is the the social mobility the 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 haves versus have-nots and you know education I was raised to believe that education was your future right you got educated to give yourself a future and I worry about um, children missing out on being in school I feel like it's a it's a huge huge risk we're taking but but look I you know I I know why we're here I sort of understand some of the decision-making, although, um, you know, I'm not a politician, so nobody asked me. Is there any modeling of, like, worldwide pandemic for financial yeah. markets? Yes, or, yes, okay, I, yes. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, there was. So, um, but, you know, the, it doesn't, you know, just because you can model a possible event doesn't mean you can predict exactly what happens. Mm -hmm. and doesn't doesn't mean you can prevent anything from necessarily happening um but from a financial from the financial services perspective the one of the silver linings from the 2008 crisis was an increased focus on scenario analysis and um and stress testing and so we increasingly sit down and think about the different scenarios that could happen over a you know one to three to five year horizon and what impact that would have on our businesses and we may not get the scenario right but the market moves and the impact on our businesses you know, we generally, we can generally get right. You know, we say, oh, the market's gonna have this much volatility or it's gonna have this much movement or it's gonna fall this much or interest rates are gonna do this and FX is gonna do that and um, the economy is gonna do this. And, and we can make some assumptions about worst case scenario. And, um, and we try to figure out if that happens, do we have enough capital? If that happens, how should we respond? And so we won't, we were never going to predict the exact future, but we had processes that helped us think through possible future scenarios and possible market moves. And so it was a starting point. So avian flu was one of the scenarios that many people used as a starter, for example, because that, when that happened, I forget what year that was when avian flu came around, but um, a lot of banks thought, oh, well, hang on, what about a pandemic? What about a global pandemic? And, um, and that became, you know, one of the standard scenarios. So yes, people thought about it, but does it mean you can prevent necessarily um, anything from happening in the future? It, no. It, or even predict it exactly? No. I mean, it's, 
you know, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think I've, I've just been surprised. I mean, you know, the resilience, I mean, I'm looking at my 401k or whatever, but, you know, in comparison to what I'm seeing, all these restaurants and stores closing, and I'm like, they don't really, they're not, one and one is not equaling yeah, two right now. Yeah, where there's so. a real, people are, yeah, there's this concept of the disconnect between um, what the stock market seems to be saying and what the, um, what Main Street seems to be telling us with our eyes. And um, the truth is that, you know, the stock market on the whole, those indices that we all look at, um, aren't necessarily a reflection of, of Main Street. And they're not necessarily a, a reflection of, a, an immediate reflection of, of what's happening. Um, and, you know, there's shifts in supply and demand that have an impact on it. And when interest rates are so low, nobody wants to invest in bonds. You know, they're all looking at something, something that has some return. So, you know, money gets thrown into equities. Um, and, uh, and look, the U.S. is a growth market on the whole, whereas there are many other jurisdictions, other countries where the, the stock indices are really more like, indice, more like income um, investments because there's not as much, there's not as many growth opportunities. But but yeah the the that disconnect is um it's 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 something that a lot of people are commenting on it's interesting at the moment it's really it's interesting to think through for sure yeah no it just it has some of the the housing market feel to it and i you know i know you were <laughs> you know you were one of the oracles early on that were like there's something maybe a little fishy about this yeah um, irrational <laughs> exuberance yeah irrational yeah. exuberance but um yeah i mean Look, again, nobody can predict the future. And I, even my ability in 05 to claim irrational exuberance, you know, my timing was way off because that bubble didn't pop until 08. So, <laughs> um, so in 05, it's a good thing that I didn't, you know, bet, um, bet the farm on my view because um, it went even higher. <laughs> Thank you again, Terry. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And um, in the podcast underneath, I'll put some links to Terry's website and her book and um, also your frontline interview. So some very interesting things that I found fascinating um, getting ready for this. So again, thank you so much. Well, thank you. And well done for doing this. It's good to try and get people together again.